This is the Power to Podcast, show 69. And I love my job because one of the things I want to preach to my students is you are bilingual, multilingual students. Your futures are so bright. You can literally go out and I had a student uh, who moved to D.C. recently, spoke eight languages. You heard that correctly, eight. Welcome to a real-world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Ken Herman, host of the Power to Podcast, and I am here with my co-host, Mr. Matt, breaking down barriers, Rogers. Matt, what is going on, my friend? How are you doing tonight? You know, I am so good right now. I am amped up. It is the week before PSSA state testing. We had our first testing skills conversation because the kids don't have to worry about it. You know, we've done some great stuff all year long. I have no worries whatsoever. Yeah, I don't know. Six days before they start, that's about the right time to start some test taking strategies. So that's what's going on in my world. What's going on with you? I agree with you. I don't really think you need to do much before then. Um, You know, I would say something I did a little bit before six days is exposing them to multiple choice questions just because we didn't do that a lot. Um, so embedding that into some of our centers and stations was a, another thing I did, but I'm doing great as well. I actually spent my day facilitating professional development for a small school. Um, so I designed the entire day for them. It was my second day working with them and they were a fantastic group. Um, you know, we talked a lot about, uh, systems to put in place for student centered learning. We talked a lot about enhancing and improving the culture of learning in your school, um, how to how to build choice in, do value-based choice versus skill-based choice, a lot of big idea concepts. And I, I told them, you know, my first day with them was really successful. They challenged me and I challenged them in a positive way. And, you know, I said to them, it I could have made your day very easy and come in and say, this is how you screencastify. This is how you use Nearpod. I could have just taught them tools and it would have been a much easier day for them. But I was pleased to know that I could challenge them as much as I did. And to be honest, it could have been a lot easier for me to plan if I would have done that same thing. So it was a really, really productive day of, of productive struggle and, and really having some great conversations. So it was awesome to follow that up with an amazing interview that we just had. Uh, we had the 2022 Nebraska Teacher of the Year, uh, Lee Perez, and he is an ESL teacher and he just blew us away with ideas, with practical instructional strategies on how to support these students. Uh, this was hugely beneficial for me because I would say this is probably one of my greatest weaknesses as a teacher, just for the mere fact that I haven't had much experience supporting and teaching these students. Um, so Matt, what's one main thing you, or one small thing that you think teachers and our listeners can take away from this interview? 
to summarize, I think, you know, you know, the hashtag work worth doing. Um, I, I feel like Lee demonstrated not just his position, but teachers in general, how we have the ability to make sizable changes for kids and, and impact kids lives substantially, which is just, you know, really, really powerful. I'll, I'll give a little preview. He he, meant, uh, he mentioned the idea of getting this advice that um, he was exhausted at the end of the day and more tired than his students, which I know we've talked about before. And specifically with my ESL experience, now again, I have nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds. They're very malleable and they're very much desiring to please me and other classmates. They, they want to help. If you give a nine-year-old Google Translate, they do not see language as a barrier. And it's been incredible to, you know, turn over some of the responsibility. I don't need to be a language expert. And you'll hear Lee, he's not a language expert, even though he's responsible for administering English uh, to members of the school community that it will be their second or maybe third or ninth language as he refers to. And so just something to point out that going along not to, you know, gas you up anymore, but that idea of turning it over to kids often is totally educationally responsible. And I think sometimes we need to hear that. It's okay to hand that over because we we often default to we need to do. I'm, I'm sitting in that interview, Ken. I don't know if you felt this way. Oh my goodness, I should be. I should be. I should be. I can't believe I haven't done. I need to go tomorrow and do this. And then I started thinking, you know, my ELs are well cared for. They are growing at an incredible rate. They are involved in so many parts things are going right. And I need to lean into that. Um, and like you said, you know, it's kind of an uncomfortable and relatively, dare I say, new thing for us to, to be considering as educators, because it is just becoming significantly more um, prevalent in regular ed and, and all classrooms. Yeah, I mean, I was sitting in that interview thinking exactly what you were just saying, and just the idea that, you know, man, I just feel so lucky right now. We just get to hear amazing conversations week in and week out. And we have been on a run of just awesome, awesome guests. And Lee has just continued to raise that bar. I mean, we've just had so many great conversations and, you know, it's, it's why we do this podcast. We want to provide the space for these amazing educators to talk about what they're passionate about and talk about what, you know, really gets them going and gets them powered up. And, and we just get to learn so many amazing strategies, mindsets, ideas from these teachers. And, and I just hope more and more teachers start to follow along, not because I want our listeners to increase, because I want the impact that this show can have to reach more teachers, because I truly believe the guests that we are curating here is just is just an incredible experience and some of the best conversations I think happening in education. I'm trying to say that from a non-biased standpoint, but I really do believe that. So on that note, before we jump into the interview, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast so you can listen to Lee and the other amazing educators 
that we have every week because we release a show every Thursday, whether you're listening or watching us on YouTube. And if you are not, follow us on Twitter as well. Matt, where can everyone follow you on Twitter? Me at EdTechNeighbor. That's my handle. Okay. And, you and can... I am at Ken Ehrman. And also our podcast is at PowerEDUUp. So make sure you're following along. Um, we should probably do a better job of reminding people of that every week where they can follow us since we ask our guests every week. So show 69, we're getting it there and we're, uh, we're improving as we go here. So without any further delay, let's jump into this awesome interview with Lee Perez. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Hi, Lee. Welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. How are you doing tonight? Doing good. How are you this evening? We're doing excellent. So start things off real simple for us. Officially introduce yourself. Let us know where you are coming from and give us a snapshot of your career in education. Yeah. So my name is Lee Perez. Uh, I just turned 40 on January 19th. I teach English as a Second Language ESL for Alice Buffett Magnet Middle School in Omaha, Nebraska. And that name should sound familiar. That is actually Warren Buffett's aunt, who's um, the school's named after. It's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful, supportive school. It's kind of a legacy school. I've only been there for three years, and um, I've been teaching 15 years overall. So I've spent the last three years teaching ESL Alice Buffett. Prior to that, I was teaching um, seventh grade world studies on the English side of a dual language program at a school called RMR's Magnet Center in South Omaha. So yeah, 15 years in education. Uh, I'm halfway done with my master's degree in um, teaching English to speakers of other languages. It's called TESOL. I was going to start that this year and then teacher of the year happened. So I'm going to put that on hold and finish that next year. But yeah, I have five classes from that and then I'll have my master's degree. So that's just a little bit about myself. Excellent. So you very humbly announced that you are the 2022 Omaha Teacher of the Year, which is uh, incredible. Um, I'm really excited to learn from you and, and and get to know you and what you're passionate about in your classroom. So, you know, full disclosure for me as a former fifth grade teacher, now as an instructional coach, you know, I had um, students included in my classroom, you know, from our, our, our autism program, learning support program, and uh, the ESL program was not at my elementary school, but I actually had one student who graduated or moved out of the ESL program and then was brought to our school because it was his home school. And it was a very eye-opening experience for me because, I mean, he was fluent in English. So I didn't even have that layer of, of support I needed to provide him. But the, the eye-opening thing for me was we would be reading stories or we would be doing different content, especially in reading and, and social studies where I saw most. And the lack of background knowledge that he had was was really really eye-opening to me or and luckily i i realized it quickly it wasn't something i anticipated and i would constantly check in with him and remind him like listen if we're ever doing something you just don't know what a word is like just check with me because it's it was usually just the lack of background knowledge and so it was eye-opening for me in the sense that i think that is one of the most challenging populations to support in a classroom so you know as a fifth through eighth grade esl teacher what would you say are your top priorities in not necessarily supporting students, because I know we'll get into that, but really supporting teachers in doing our best to, to support those students. 
Okay, so that's why I ran for Nebraska Teacher of the Year is when I looked at the history of the award since 1972, there has never been an ESL teacher that ever won State Teacher of the Year. So that's why I ran because I started to notice that in my career, even, even when I was at Mars, the dual language program is a program where they enroll English language learners, we call them L's. And I just noticed that there was just a lot of misconceptions and misinformation and just language myths about ESL students overall. So whenever I go out and I give my speeches and my keynotes and my workshops around the state of Nebraska, you know, education majors and student teachers and even, you know, education faculty will ask me these questions. And I'm just like thinking like, this is why I ran for Nebraska Teacher of the Year. So for example, let me give you some language facts. Number one, it takes seven to 10 years to learn, master and apply language according to linguistics. Uh, so it takes time. It is a process. Uh, number two, there's this myth that goes around that you have to speak all these languages to be an ESL teacher. Sometimes one of the questions is asked me is like, how do you know 50 languages? I'm like, I don't, I, I wish I did, but I don't. And you don't have to be bilingual or multilingual to be an ESL teacher. It does help, but um, you are teaching them English. And many of them that come over specifically as refugees do get a lot of social English instruction and refugee camps that are provided by the United Nations and like the Peace Corps that'll send teachers over there to teach these populations English. Uh, another one is uh, a student's native language can actually support their acquisition of a, of a second language. So specifically like with Spanish, it's called cognate. So like, for example, like conflict in English is conflicto and you can make those language connections with students, but it's not just Spanish. Like any, according to language experts and, lingu and linguistics, pretty much any student's native language can support their acquisition of a second language. So it's really an honor to go around and give these presentation and give these language facts because teachers need more training on English language learners because they always come to, one of the two big things I see is they automatically think, okay, it's a SPED issue, special education. And I'm like, not necessarily, not that kids can't, can't be dual coded, they can, or they think, oh, well, it's, it's a speech language pathology issue. And I'm like, no, that's called an accent. That's, that's an Eastern European accent from like Tajikistan. So it's always nice to go around and just give this information and language research to teachers and these strategies to help them work with English language learners because they are an increasing population in the United States, specifically when you look at Afghanistan and even in Ukraine, you know, the U.S. Department of State said that they are getting ready to relocate 100,000 Ukrainian refugees in the United States. And those will be English language learners in our classrooms. They're going to be in math. They're going to be in social studies. They're going to be in English language arts. They're going to be in science. They're going to be in industrial technology, human growth and development, music, PE. And I think it's important that teachers have the language facts and research and the strategies to work with these populations. You are absolutely, uh, I mean, like needed. The, it's what so you good stand that you were. And, and, well, it, I think it's one of those aspects where, um, to, to give you kind of my, my background, so I'm a fourth grade teacher, oh, our you. elementary <laughs> school, thank you. Um, so our elementary school used to um, uh, kind of, uh, take in the autistic support and send uh, our ELs to the other elementary school, um, which my wife works at. My wife is uh, um, hard, hardly fluent in Spanish, but definitely uh, 
studied it and retained a lot of it and has gone to Spain and, um, and uh, to the Dominican Republic and different areas where she's been able to utilize Spanish. And I know ESL is not just Spanish, but in our population, that's what we are most frequently interacting with. Last year, uh, during the pandemic, ELs were transitioned to their neighborhood schools because the need uh, became great enough that we had an additional teacher. And so we spent a lot of professional development trying to acclimate how to support ELs. And it was embarrassing to say that there was a bunch of educators all in a room that professionally work with kids that felt so flustered at the concept of supporting learners being learners, but it is a very unique situation to consider, you know, this tapping into a previous language and a variety of, of abilities and to not have associations and to not have, you know, what we would hear from a traditional uh, English learner and one who maybe domestically was born here. Uh, yeah, if we hear something, yes, like you said, that might trigger uh, whether it's a special education consideration, whether it's a speech and language, that by default, if it doesn't fall within the realm of what we would expect, is a red flag. Um, and it has been the most challenging, I guess most humbling um, introduction back into my classroom um, only recently to the point that I have a, uh, a level one uh, language uh, English learner and it has flipped my classroom. So all that context to say, you know, you, you bring up the concept of, you know, in refugee camps that they're getting, you know, baseline uh, social English skills. What happens, uh, what do you suggest in the worst case scenario, you have a brand new English speaker. How do you navigate that and supporting the teachers first and then the students? Right. And that's a good question. So a lot of times when we get, and I have had students that come over that can't like, for example, I just got two from Honduras like two or three months ago and they literally couldn't say hello. Like, so you do, so specifically in the ELL world, it's called SLIFE and that's, that's an acronym. There's a lot of acronyms in ESL, but it's called SLIFE. It stands for students with limited interrupted formal education, which means in, in their life, their education was somehow interrupted and sometimes they went years. And I do mean years without any type of traditional school. So they get to the United States and again, they can't even say hello. And it can start as simple as just, I always tell uh, mainstream teachers, just pictures, just literally show them pictures. So like when I get new students in my room, I, one activity I like to do is I like to take these little postcards and write chair, put it on the chair, clock, put it on the clock, um, door handle, you know, just little things like that to get their social language. Because, you know, there's two types of their language. You have, you know, social language. And then you have your academic language. So obviously you have to build up and hone the skills and social language to get to that academic piece. But something as simple as taking post-its and writing what it is and then placing them around the room, scissors, computer, you know, it, it helps out a lot. And like today, uh, you know, one of the students that I just got, she actually came up and read our objectives today. And she, literally she read it like, 
without hesitation. Uh, she was able to pronounce every single word except two of them. And there were like 12 words in our objectives. So again, it kind of goes back to that piece of it takes time to learn a language. And so I always challenge people, you know, because, you know, a lot of times teachers get flustered and they say, well, this kid is, why isn't the student doing this? Are they not capable of learning? And I always, sometimes we have to be uncomfortable. And I always say, you know, imagine you went to Japan and you walked into a Japanese school and you didn't speak Japanese. By the way, there's two alphabets in the Japanese language, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. There's two alphabets. Yeah. How confusing is that? And you didn't speak Japanese and the teacher hands you something and they're talking to you really fast. Well, by that logic, does that mean that you're not capable of learning? And they're like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Well, not, yeah, exactly, because that's called perspective. And if anybody's ever traveled internationally, you understand how uncomfortable it is. You know, I was in Mexico. My wife is fluent in Spanish. That was her first language. So she's actually at ELL growing up. There were times I was in the market outside Mexico City where she would leave me alone for like 10 minutes. And it was uncomfortable because I, my Spanish was not good enough to really communicate a lot with people. So I kind of understand and can kind of empathize with my ELLs what that's like, because imagine coming to a new country where you're facing a new culture, a new education system, and now you have a language barrier and you're, you know, eight, 10, 12 years old, you know, imagine how scary that is. <laughs> it's so, it's like, I always try to challenge my colleagues, like, Imagine taking a test, but it's in Arabic. Imagine reading a book, but it's in Russian. Imagine trying to write a five-paragraph essay, but you have to do it in um, Konkubal, which is an ancient Mayan language where I've got from Guatemala. And they're just like taken aback by that. And I'm like, yeah, that's what our ELLs deal with. And it's not that they don't want to learn English. They just need the time to learn it. They actually, They actually tell me that once they learn English, did, did you know that English is one of the easiest languages to learn because our alphabet is not complex? It's not very complex at all. But again, it still takes time to learn. And it's amazing because I remember one time I met a former ELL from the Philippines and she was doing her PhD. at. I met her at a conference in Tucson, Arizona, this multilingual, multicultural education conference. And she was doing her PhD at Colorado State in linguistics and language education. And she had lived in the United States for 25 years. And she goes, I still, to this day, after living in the United States for 25 years, and I'm literally doing my PhD in language theory and all that stuff. And I literally am books in my research and I still struggle with the English language. So I raised my hand and I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she goes, well, one of the things I've noticed is language is generational. So when I arrived here in the 1980s, People spoke differently in the 80s than they do now, which is absolutely true. And she's like, not only that, I've noticed that people in different states use English differently. Like in Colorado, they use it differently than they do in Florida and vice versa. And so, you know, when you have generational and you have geographical factors in language, it's confusing. It really is. And so language is just one of those extraordinary phenomenons that's just constantly changing. And one of the things that's making it change is cell phones. Cell phones is changing the way we write, we speak, we read, and we just take in like knowledge. And it's just, it, it's one of those things that's it's never going to stop changing and evolving because language is such a, uh, just such a large mechanism of, you know, many different cultures, traditions, norms, and values. So.
And that's not to mention, you know, any of the spectrum of figurative language where, you know, literal doesn't match um, that interpretation. I think it's super interesting. So you talk about, you know, all these scenarios, and it makes me go back to my high school language class where, you know, my my professor at the time um, or teacher at the time uh, spent the first 10 minutes talking in English so that everyone knew the expectations. And then from that moment, the switch shifted. And while basic language uh, really minimized the, the use of English, and that exposure, as you're mentioning, is um, sobering, if you will, um, and and uncomfortable. But the key there is the exposure to the language and, you know, the rhythms or the um, uh, repetition or the emphasis or even the hand gestures, the miming that goes along with the language. I think right now, and I'll, and I'll go and I'll use this as a personal support right now. So I, my, as I mentioned, I have a level one EL, which means that she knew very, very little English. Oh, yes. coming I've had hundreds, yes. <laughs> yeah. And so we are finally transitioning. We, every single thing, as you mentioned, is labeled in my classroom as the e- English and uh, in this case, Spanish equivalent to which we've taken down the Spanish equivalent, which to this point, you know, her dictation, she, she was a very high student from her native country. Um, she has picked up so much that, you know, she can look at words and read it almost with high quality fluency. Her comprehension is obviously not there, but it's, it follows much of the same alphabetic principle and blending and diagraphs, these type of things that, you know, she was able to connect to. So I guess my my question, again, this is benefiting me as well as hopefully launching into something else is, you know, we get the idea of exposure. We understand this idea of, you know, if they hear it enough, maybe they'll pick up on certain things and they're eagerly, you know, they want to learn English. They want to feel more comfortable. And the big question is, what comes next? Because you and your position say for the first few weeks, you know, have her grow comfortable, you know, use translation, um, have her do as much as she can in the scenario. And, you know, I can have almost grade level expectations at this point in my mathematics skills, but not quite in my English uh, and language arts skills, which for many obvious reasons. So what is kind of that spectrum of transitions in the sense of how we support learners, you know, they are able to, you know, slowly speak the language or um, basic communication, but it's accurate. How do you continue to um, support learners that are acquiring this language at a rapid rate, but continue to, to, to build? Because we all know the teacher's classic, you know, if they're in my room, I have to I have to assess them and take the credit. And, you know, if they didn't do it to that low, we all know that scenario. Um, It's very difficult to say right now she has a math grade, but she doesn't have an ELA grade. Right. And the, the thing I do is, you know, I, whenever I get a new student, I never want to, one of the reasons, um, I have literally a 44% exit rate in my program, which means kids take a state assessment in Nebraska called the English Language Proficiency Assessment for the 21st Century. It's called LP21. 
So they take it in reading, writing, speaking, and listening. So I have a 44% exit rate in my program. And one of the reasons my exit rate is so high is that I really, really firmly believe in all the language facts I just said. So for example, even that new student that I got, you know, today we were doing an assignment and I basically said to her, like, you know, if you want to write this in English, you can, but you don't have to, if you want to write it in Spanish. And so what she first started writing everything in Spanish. So then now she's starting to write things in English. Like she'll write half of it in Spanish and half it in English. So that just kind of tells me that she is picking up things quickly because here's the thing. One of the, one of the best ways to learn a language is in my opinion, is to not take a class. It's to be immersed in it like daily. Like, you know, I took two years of Spanish in high school and I'm not, nothing against my Spanish teachers or anything, but I, my Spanish was more honed in three weeks in Mexico just by social, because, you know, we're human beings. We are social beings by nature. And so my Spanish was better honed just by being socially immersed in it on a daily basis than by taking every class. So one of the things that we do all the time in my class is we're constantly talking to each other and not just in English, in other languages. And, you know, for example, today, one of my ELs that I got a few years ago, she literally came in, didn't speak any English, and now she's talking all sorts of English. And I'm always telling the students, someday you're going to be her, just be patient. And so I was just like, you know, we had, we had a little bit of spare time. We had like, you know, eight minutes left and it was kind of a long day. And I said, you know, write your alphabet for me. And she wrote her alphabet in Russian for me. And it's cool because like the, the acrylic, the Russian alphabet's called the acrylic alphabet. It's very similar to the Greek alphabet. And she was just kind of explaining what every word meant. She was writing things out. But again, it's, it's about being patient, giving the students time and just being very um, empowering with their native language. Because, you know, we, we live in a world where I understand that English is the primary language spoken, but, you know, you have all these English only initiatives. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, English is bad or anything, I teach it. But the thing is, is, you know, a lot of these kids, when they come over, they want to keep their culture intact they, and language and culture are the same thing. So not that they don't want to assimilate into American society, but I truly believe in the notion of acculturation and that is coming over to America, you know, and embracing our values, but never forgetting where you came from either, you know, and a lot of that is language. So that's, that's how I approach it. And it seems to be working is because I want to be super respectful to these kids and their languages because I mean, their language is beautiful. Like just looking at the Russian alphabet, looking at the, you know, alphabets of other countries and having them explain how things work. Um, English is easy. It really is easy. And I love my job because one of the things I want to preach to my students is you are bilingual, multilingual students. Your futures are so bright. You can literally go out and I, I had a student uh, who moved to DC recently, spoke eight languages. You heard that correctly, eight. And she's learning Spanish right now. And I told her, you know, her primary language was Darian Pashtu from Afghanistan. And instead of writing right to left, they write it left to right. And it's just, I watched her write it one day and it was probably one of the most surreal things to watch in the world. It was super, super cool. But she sometimes she would... Uh, 
sometimes she would complain to me because I would say like, can you take this assignment and write it in, you know, Pashto? And she'd be like, oh, do I have to? And then she showed me, because in a lot of alphabets, something as simple as my name is Lee can be like, almost like a paragraph long. It's just some of these, some of these languages, their alphabets are super wordy. So then when she showed me what it looked like, I was like, okay, just write half of it. And she's like, oh, okay, okay. But it's like watching her, because she was kind of ambidextrous, you know, so she could write with her left hand. Watching her write that was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So I am big on multi-language, uh, multilingual pedagogy in my classroom. And it's working. It does absolutely work for sure. So as a, as a classroom teacher, regardless if I'm teaching health and phys ed, art, you know, social studies, ju just general subjects, and I have students that are, you know, that are ELL students, they're transitioning in, they're, they're starting to pick up the social pieces. You know, I've done some of the strategies that you're talking about. The academic piece is, is a whole nother layer to, yes, to tackle. Is. And you talked about the difference between social and academic language. And, yes. you know, it's very, it's very easy when you compare supporting a, a student who struggles with the content because they have a learning disability or, or different For things sure. to this language barrier. Well, now all of a sudden differentiating to that, that student with a learning disability seems a lot easier because I just need to find a different strategy. Maybe I bring in some manipulatives. You know, that was something that I did for years. So, so for me with a lack of experience that now all of a sudden seems incredibly easy compared to this, this challenge of language barrier. So how do I, how do I support, how do I, what are some simple strategies to best support these learners who have these language barriers from the academic sense, very well knowing that they could be incredibly intelligent, but like you said, it's a completely different language. So what are some simple things that I can start to do on a daily basis to support these students academically aside from that, that social language? I'm, I'm glad you asked that because a lot of people, they will, treat, they will treat multilingualism and bilingualism as a disability and treat it as an ability. Like the fact that a student can code switch and translanguage into multiple languages a day, you know, because I have kids that some of them are bilingual, trilingual, speak four languages, speak eight. The fact that they can do that says that they can learn language. That's called comprehensible input. So one of the reasons why my students are so successful in my program is I, once their language is to a level where I think that they can um, be challenged with very rigorous instruction, that's exactly what I do. So I use a lot of academic conversations and debates. So it's actually one of my workshops is Nebraska Teacher of the Year. And when this interview is over, I will email both of you um, a story circle that two of my English language learners did on a very tough topic to talk about, equity. Equity in schools. Yes, you heard that right. They actually talked about what equity is in school, and they talked about what examples were. And the incredible thing about it is these students have only been in the United States for three years. So, you know, remember that seven to 10 years, but what you see is kind of like, it's kind of like that analogy of the iceberg of hard work, like underneath you see all the sacrifice, the late night, the tears. So what you're seeing is the top of the iceberg. And we have this very powerful academic conversation on equity in schools and they give personal experiences, they give personal testimony. But I always tell people, 
um, you know, I always tell like professors and student teachers and faculty that ask me, how did you do that? I go, I taught them how to do that. But not only that, I, I went in with the belief that they could do that. And you have, you have to believe that ELLs can do that because a lot of times what we do with ELLs is we get them, we say, okay, they don't speak English. So what do we do? We put them in the corner and we just give them a workbook. Well, I mean, if you do that, of course, they're not going to learn anything. So again, it's, I taught them how to do that. And when you watch that, you're going to notice that they use some of the same, um, same language that I do, some of the same like language starters that I use and conversation starters that I use, but I taught them how to do that. And you'll, you'll see, okay, they're, they're, they're keep saying, in my opinion, I believe I taught them how to do that. And then it just starts, so, you know, in my room, I'll, I'll bring in, you know, topics that are interesting because I, th I think if kids are more interested in a topic, they're more likely to be engaged. So for example, one time we did an academic conversation on cell phones in schools, like, are you for it or against it? And I always tell my students that you are free to disagree with me. Like, cause a lot of times kids think, oh, if I disagree with my teacher, then I'm going to get in trouble. No, I, I tell my students all the time, I want you to disagree with me. I want you to disagree with me and students disagree with me all the time. So it starts off as simple as, you know, teaching students what a fact and what an opinion is. You show them examples, you show them pictures, you show them like hypothetical situations with that. And once they've mastered that, then you can go on to academic conversations. So you give them a topic like, you know, do you think, uh, you know, for example, like uh, texting and driving, we had an academic conversation on that. And their guiding question was, do you think that police officers should be able to write tickets to teenagers that text and drive? Some were for, some were against it. And we've had these really incredible conversations with, you know, English language learners where they're able to state their opinion and then they're able to actually defend their opinion with reasoning and even evidence from like a text. But again, it's that constant scaffolding, it's that constant linguistic supports that I'm giving them, but it's also the belief that they can act, they can do the work. They absolutely can do the work. And so if you ever want any examples of what that looks like, I would be more than happy to send you my lessons. And because the thing is, is a lot of these strategies are good for all kids. You know, all students can benefit from academic conversations, you know, high ability learners, you know, sometimes we forget they need needs, you know, special education, you know, ELLs, you know, even, even our regular kiddos, they can benefit from being better critical thinkers, you know, being able to cite text evidence, being able to defend positions with reasoning. You know, I've had, I've had students in my class write the mayor of Omaha about how to make the city of Omaha more equitable for people with disabilities, specifically with wheelchairs. If you ever want to see those letters, I'll send them to you. And, but again, that's the result of the constant scaffolding and the constant teaching and reteaching of the skill. But again, they absolutely are capable of that when they're ready. You know, so for example, with the student I have now, she's not ready for that yet. But I always say yet. The key word is yet. She will get there. Because one of the students that I will send you this YouTube link, she will even admit towards the end of the story circle on equity, she was like, when I first got here, the only words I could say were, I don't speak English. And now you'll see how her academic English has progressed. And you'll be like, wow, that's incredible for being only being in the United States for three years. That's, that's amazing. So yeah, it's just, honestly, I, I think sometimes teachers make it harder than it has to be. 
but it's kind of one of those misconceptions or that bias we have of, oh, it's an ELL. They're incapable of learning. It's kind of like kids with autism. We, we've heard that myth with, well, kids with autism can't learn. Yes, they can. Oh, they absolutely can learn. Special education kids can learn. We just have to figure out how they learn. And the how is probably the most important part. So, yeah. Yeah. So I will say one, I would absolutely love to get any of those resources you're willing to share. Yes. We can throw all of them up on our show notes page, which for this yes. one is poweredup.com slash show 69. So yes. I'll, I'll link all that in. Um, uh, before Matt, before you jump in, I just want to just kind of reinforce the thing that you're saying. You keep saying that I love is, you know, this belief that they could do that. And you, again, now referenced students with autism, the learning support students, you know, um, a phrase that I hear a lot that I, I can't stand hearing, and it doesn't even have to relate to ELL populations or special ed. It's, well, the students should know that they should know how to manage their time. They should know how to study. No, they shouldn't. If they don't know, it's our job to teach them. If they don't know how, you know, I'm big on student-centered learning and, you know, driving that in my classroom. How do the students know how to make decisions? How do, because I taught them. I be- yes. And like you said, I had a belief that if I scaffold it properly, if I directly teach these, that they will pick up these strategies, but it's my job to teach them. If they don't know that, it's my job. Some years the kids might know that and some years they might not. And so I, I just, I love what you're saying. Sorry, sorry yeah. to cut you off, Matt. No, no, it's fine. And I, I just want to say, I agree with you 100%. A lot of times teachers do have that attitude. They say, well, they should already know how to do that. So specifically with ELLs, you know, because I'm an ESL teacher, you know, kids will come over and, you know, they'll say, well, why don't they know how to do this? Well, it's because they haven't been in school for six years because they're SLIFE. They're students with limited interrupted formal education. They know how to, they know how to do a lot of things. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that is, you know, we're a teacher. That's our job is to teach them. I mean, it's, I mean, think about it. when, when we come back from winter break, what do we go over the first week? Rules and procedures and how school works. Because literally within, what, two weeks, they forget that. And sometimes they just need a refresher. I mean, I've never once in my almost 16 years of teaching had my students come in and say, okay, you all remember what to do. Let's just continue. No, we review fire drills, you know, how to use the bathroom, everything. I mean, it's, it's again, something that has to be explicitly taught. And yeah, that drives me crazy too, is like, well, they should already know how to do that. <laughs> no, no, it's like, it's, it, 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 here's the thing, like, my philosophy is, is even if it kills, even if a kid has mastered a skill, they can still do better. Like, they absolutely can do better. Like, you'll see one of my students in this YouTube video, and I'll, I'll link it in the chat um, when we get off this interview. She's, I mean, we did this back in October. It's April. And her English is just, I, you know, you can walk into my classroom and you can say to my kids, what does the word transparent mean? I want you to be transparent with me. And my kids know what you're talking about because I've taught them what that word means. We've used examples. I've showed them pictures. My kids know what advocate and advocacy means. So when my kids come up to me and they say, well, Mr. Prez, I have you know, I'm, I'm kind of struggling in this class. I say, I want you to go advocate for yourself. And so they'll, I'll write them a pass and they'll go do that because they know what I mean by that. It's like always, every day I try to introduce at least two to three vocabulary words to them. And I explicitly try to teach them that. 
So like, you know, we were getting ready to test and stuff. And I said, I don't want you to get fatigued. They know what that means. They know what I mean by that. I didn't say tired. I said, I don't want you to get fatigued. They, they understand what that means. So I always try to introduce three, two to three new vocabulary words a day. And, but the thing is, is like, I'm constantly teaching them things. And I, yeah, it, it drives me nuts when teachers say that. And I, I, if I had a dime for every time I heard that, I'd, I'd have a yacht in Aruba right now. I really would. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and I think, you know, the, the two things merging them together, you know, Lee, what you're saying is what, what you're covering conversations and arguments or opinions and evidence um, through those demonstrations and activities. That's just good teaching practice. And that's what we've seen, you know, in every spectrum of teaching, every spectrum, you know, it, as I was a learning support teacher for five years and, you know, the attributes, what allowed me to transition smoothly into a regular ed classroom was simply knowing how to create adaptations and modifications for my students if I observed them not being successful in the moment. It wasn't a big concern. I didn't sit behind a podium and say, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. But whatever the spectrum is, you know, we as educators look and say, hey, how can we problem solve? That is the game of education. And so the opposite is they should know is really the the dystopian, you know, all of my learners are advanced and I send them and they do high quality book work with no kind of expectations. Um, I don't know if there's ever been a class like that, but um, it's definitely not what our classroom is going to look in the next three, five, ten years, because, you know, whether it's language support, whether it's learning support, whether it's autism, emotional support, you know, needing to see counseling there's baggage, there's stories realistically behind all kids. So being able to just say, you know, this is how we navigate it is the, that open mindset to how do I support a kid regardless of, you know, labels or, uh, you know, abbreviations that are associated with them. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's how can I support them? But the one thing I kind of wanted to talk about because uh, I, I heard this working with our English language uh, or ESL teacher was this idea of connecting with families. And it brought up this um, two things. So um, the first thing that I thought was interesting, he said, is it's really important to communicate and create the bridge for families, um, especially in uh, ESL situations, because they often don't necessarily feel comfortable to know the best way to communicate. And a lot of times with not knowing the best way to do it, they don't communicate. And then we as educators say, oh my goodness, I can't believe this parent's not responding. Well, you need to open that door first. And there are some fantastic ways to do introductory phone calls with translation, um, even, even seeing the kids there. So that is one thing I want you to talk about and then I have a follow-up afterwards, uh, tapping into safety. So first of all, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that point because uh, I always tell teachers that some of the best teaching and some of the best advocacy will happen outside of the four rooms of your classroom. And being engaged with families and community is vital. 
one of the programs I'm trying to initiate at my school, it's actually a program we did at our old school. My wife, who has been a huge supporter of mine and helped me out, she's like my rock. I love her very much. Mariana, got to give you a shout out. But we used to do adult, adult ESL classes where parents would come in, we'd have a teacher watch their kids for an hour, and they would get adult ESL classes for free. And in a year, they could get a certificate and everything. So what I'm trying to do is I'm, you know, COVID, COVID kind of threw a wrench in that for many years, and I'm still trying to work on that right now. My school's fabulous, but a lot of my kids' as parents want, to, and that's that's another myth I kind of want to dispel. Is a lot of times in the population, we in American population, they say, well, they don't want to learn English. Yes, they do. They just don't know the resources, and so. I've constantly asked my kids, does your mom, does your dad, does your aunt, your uncle, do they want to learn English? Not like, yes, they just don't know where to go. So one of the programs and initiatives that I'm trying to start, I actually put it in my teacher of the year application with community engagement is I'm trying to initiate the first adult English language learning classes at Buffett Middle School where either myself or another certified ESL teacher would come in and they would we would bring in families once a week for an hour and they would give them adult ESL classes for free because that's going to do two amazing things. That's number one, that's going to help our families learn in English because they want to learn English. Let's make that clear. They want to learn English. And number two, it's going to empower them to learn English so they can be more involved with their students and their school. And I think that is probably the most powerful piece because a lot of times my yells will say, yeah, my mom and dad want to do this, but they, their English is not good enough. And that's the thing. I want to be able to not only support my students, but I want to be able to support the families and the communities. And that is a, a, pro a project I'm working on right now. Again, um, COVID numbers have gone down. Uh, school's almost over. So this is something I'm looking towards next year. But the interest in that is like literally 99.9% .9 of my families want their, their families want to do it. They're eager to do it. And it's something that I really want to do because I really want to advocate for my, my students, their families and our communities. And that's where it's almost beneficial that, you know, you have kids that are obligated to receive the services because they're school age. Yes. And you know, that, that challenge, you know, Duolingo and uh, Rosetta Stone are great programs, but awesome. they're not I cheap. I love that program, yeah. Yeah, but they're not cheap. And, yes. you know, if it's one of those things that you're you're jumping, you know, that's something you might be able to go if you are school age and yes. have more access to and learn other languages and those associations. The one other thing Can that I, I ask a really quick I'll... question, Matt, totally related to this I topic? I guess so. Uh, Lee, <laughs> have ahead. you ever heard of the application called Talking Points? No, I have not. So someone in my district found this and was exploring it a little bit uh, just in the last month or so. It's If you're familiar with the app called Remind, where you can essentially text with parents through your computer, but you're it's texting to them, but you're getting it back through their software, so you're not actually giving out your cell phone number. It's that really? premise, yeah. but it automatically translates. So I can type a message in English. And then you will receive the message in whatever native language you use. You can wow. respond in your native language. And then I get your response in English. And no. so far, she has found really good success with 
know, she's kind of asking the parents, like, is it actually like, are you actually understanding what I'm, what I'm saying? And just based on their responses, she's starting to infer that it, it, it works pretty well. So it's called talking points. I'll link that up as well. Um, yeah, I'd be curious no, for you I've to kind of to yeah, vet but... it. And I'm looking at it here because I couldn't remember the name of it, but I did find it. And it's it's free for teachers for for good. It's a nonprofit organization. So I was just curious if you ever heard of that. Sorry, Matt. No, but thank you. That is awesome. That sounds that would be very very helpful. That's awesome. Wow. Actually, I did hear about that at our, our training, and it is one of the the more um, supportive. And honestly, again, what you were almost mentioning, Lee, was this idea of creating a smaller gap between the barrier that the parents feel so that they can be honest. You know, when I, I know, shamefully, early meetings with these uh, families that needed translation, one of the translators initial statements is be direct and be clear with what you're trying to say. So you, naturally you're not as expressive as you might want to be um, just because of those limits. But another thing that really kind of hit home for me um, and what I'm hearing is how Lee, you end up being a safety net for these kids. You know, they come to you with fear and anxiety and concern and worries about how to interact with their classmates. And then there's one of those aspects where, you know, current events can throw a huge wrench, whether that's politics, whether it's, you know, the status of the world, where there's significant anxiety that goes into it. So I would imagine your role ends up being both in the positive realm, promoting kids to be more uh, immersed into their regular ed classrooms through your work with language development, but it's very, very dense in counseling and guidance. And you mentioned advocacy and this idea of, you know, developing the, the learners to, to have a build uh, ability to, you know, advocate and, and recognize what they deserve. So, not to say that there's a way to limit your your role into a certain number of categories, but how do you navigate some of the more sensitive situations and what are some of the unknown features of your role beyond what we assume is just language? Yeah, so I, I wear many hats as an ESL teacher. Uh, they come to me for everything and you know I'm okay with that. I, I'm, I'm okay with that. But the one thing I always want to teach my students, especially when their language gets more developed, is how to advocate for themselves. Because I say, you know, if you're the only one in your family that speaks English, then you have to advocate for your families. Because I always tell them, I'm not always going to be around. Like, I want to teach them those skills that are going to be, that are going to transcend the classroom and transcend their education into real life. But I will say the COVID-19 pandemic was hard. So when I first started at my school, I remember, you know, it's spring break, you know, it's that Friday, you, you want to leave and you just want spring break because you're tired and you just want a, a week off. And I remember we left and we just never came back. Just everything that was right when COVID hit and everything got shut down. And I remember thinking like, are my kids okay? Like, are they eating? Are they safe? You know, are they scared? And it was really... 
I will say like, it took a toll on me as an adult. You know, I went through some anxiety and some depression and a little bit of trauma, just seeing what was unfolding in the world. And I often thought like, okay, now imagine living in a new country and not speaking the language and seeing all this unfold on TV and social media, like what that must be like. And yeah, it was, it was tough. I mean, it was really tough. It was hard. And it just, you know, I, I do a lot for my kids, you know, if they need, uh, you know, food or, or, or clothing, I reach out to nonprofits and I do advocacy for that. Uh, I actually recently did that for a family right now. Um, if, you know, for example, when the COVID-19 vaccine came out and, and it was eligible for uh, teenage students to get it, you know, lots of kids would come up to me and say, hey, can you help me and my family get the vaccine? Like, where do we go? How do we do it? What documents do we need? So I really, I literally helped set up appointments when they got their vaccine cards. I would, I would teach them like, hey, take a picture of it and document it and things like that. You know, I, I've helped families, you know, set up bank accounts. I've helped kids, you know, apply for FAFSA. Uh, things like that. I've wrote kids, many of my EL and dual language students. Um, one of my students from Mars, actually, I just wrote her a letter of recommendation and she just got a full paid tuition scholarship to a local university here in Omaha to study nursing. So yeah, I'm not just an ESL teacher. I just, I, I wear several hats and it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, some days it might be something as simple as you know, a kid is a refugee, has had a traumatic experience, and I just give them a hug and just reassure them that they're, they're safe in my classroom, you know, to, you know, helping families, you know, you know, helping families with, you know, bank accounts and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's more than just teaching English. I'm trying to teach them how to use English to apply in their daily lives. And uh, one, one of the things I want to pilot in the fall is in ESL, we do content object, you know, lots of districts call them differently, you know, learning goals, uh, content goals, content objectives. In ESL, we have content objectives and language objectives. I want to start piloting something called RWOs, which stand for real world objectives. And that is, how are they going to take these skills that they're learning in ESL and how are they going to use them in their careers? How are they going to use them in college? How are they going to use them in their career? If they don't want to go to college, how are they going to use them in their daily lives? So how, and I, I think that a lot of times we in school, we're constantly fighting this battle with kids asking this question, when am I ever going to use this? And so I think real world objectives is a way to make instruction, instruction more relevant to them and give them more of that rationale is that, okay, this is how you're going to use this in your life on a daily basis. You know, for example, when I when they wrote the mayor, I said, you know, one day you will be a constituent. You will be a you will you will be eligible to vote, and you will be able to cast your vote for whoever you want, which is fine. But you might have some criticisms with that person, and you might want to be able to express your concerns about how um, they are how, how as an elected official they can do better. And so I explained to them how this skill I was teaching them could apply in in, in their in, in in the real world and. I do that with a lot of my skills, you know, for example, with, you know, a, a lot of my kids that, um, you know, lots of my kids want to be doctors. I have a kid that wants to be a dermatologist. She actually knows what that means. Uh, lawyers, uh, small business owners, uh, accountants, bankers, 
and I always, you know, so a lot of them, I, I, you know, the verbal skills we go over, I teach them what, how, how that's good in interviews and things like that. So I, I think that a lot of times, you know, the hats that I wear, there's several, but it's good because I, I'm not only teaching them English, I'm teaching them how to use English to be a productive citizen within the United States. And there's just no greater pleasure in my job because, the, you know, these families, when they come over here, they they have just the most amazing stories, but they also have, you just say to them, like, how did you survive that? You know, it's so sad. You know, I, I've had students that have told me, uh, you know, I landed in Omaha a month ago and a month back, literally we were fleeing the Taliban because they shot a rocket at my school and they blew up my school because they don't want young girls to go to school. And now I have the privilege to come to school every day and I don't, I don't have to worry about my life or my family's life. And so just knowing that these kids come from just generational trauma that's been passed on from generation to generation, they're just so resilient that it just makes me want to wear all these hats for them, you know? So I'm totally okay with that. Absolutely. It's fascinating to, to consider, you know, we as educators get in this field to make difference in kids' lives. And it seems like, Lee, that you have the greatest privilege to make that a reality, maybe to a select number of students, you know, you may not have a class of 18 at one time and feeling like you're making an Im impact there or be a specialist where you see the entire school over a, a few day rotation, but you are that lifeline for these kids. And interestingly, like Ken, I know you and I have talked many times, we were not super well prepared to be classroom teachers. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't, a, I wasn't well prepared to be a learning support teacher out of college. I just was willing to figure out whatever it took to make a kid successful with a learning challenge. And Lee, of what I, obviously, I feel like you had some vested interest, you know, you were willing to explore and, and you found culture fascinating. And um, I'm sure you have some background in there, but instructionally, it just felt like, you know, you could have gone many ways. You just latched on a way that you thought you could make a difference in kids' lives. And it's very evident. And can I, I guess the, the thing that I'd kind of like you to kind of speak to is, you know, interacting with a lifeline, a resource like Lee in your building, how did you and your experience leverage, you know, other perspectives, other support areas? How did you utilize the resources? Because we often get emphasis to work with our learning support and our emotional support and our autistic support teachers. But how are you, how did you prioritize, you know, guidance counselors, social workers, ESL, um, other services, physical therapy, uh, occupational therapy, how did you leverage those other resources that are as vitally important in the classroom environment? I, I would say, you know, you're pointing out so many positions that are in a school that are all there to help make a, a student have a better experience, to feel more supported. And what I would say is it's important to learn what those other teachers do in those positions and what they... I don't want to say value, but what what they, what they spend a lot of their time in trying to help the student grow in so that, one, I know how I can support that and how I can reinforce those same ideas. So, you know, 
as simple as Lee, when you were talking about labeling things in the classroom, like, you know, that is something that you're doing in your classroom that benefits your students. I should be doing that. And, you know, you know, with counselors, you know, what are conversations that they're having or what is language that they're using to talk about, you know, appropriate ways to communicate with each other. Um, you know, physical therapists. So if I have a student who is going to physical therapy once a week, what are some of his goals and how can I, you know, make that student hop to his station instead of walk? Like, would that help him grow in his goals? So I think just being aware of what everybody's doing and then also knowing to tap into those resources to feel more supported in myself. So, you know, I, if I'm struggling with something, those are the people that I should be, I should be leaning on first to, to learn from. So just always being on the same page. And, and I've said this many times when we've had different special ed teachers on, the kids are very aware when the teachers are on the same page. And when they see their regular education teacher on the same page with Lee or with the learning support teacher or with the guidance counselor, they feel safer. They feel more supported because they know there is a team effort there to help them grow as students. So, you know, I think that is a, a huge piece to make sure one that you genuinely are on the same page, but also that you are making kids aware that you are on the same page, whether they whether you purposely have a conversation, you know, in front of them, not something private, but you're, you're being very overt and showing kids that you're, you're working together. So, so Lee, I want to, I want to jump into our exit ticket, which is the same four questions we ask every guest every week. I could talk to you for three more hours, but you, know, you shared with us before that you <laughs> oh, are very I, tired, yes, although you did not come fun. off as tired. You have been fired up oh, the whole time and I, uh, and I love it since you've been great. talked. Talk thirty-seven times in the last in the last uh, three days, right? So, yeah. Um, so yeah. So our exit ticket, same four questions we ask every guest every week. So question number one: What is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? Just love what they do, and you know the the thing is, you know, as you know, there's a lot of toxic negativity going around with the education profession. You know, we're in the midst of a teacher shortage, and I I know that things are tough right now, but I always tell people that just put on a smile, even if you're having a bad day, trust me, I've had plenty of bad days, but you know, sometimes you just got to put on an acting show for the kids because, you know, looking at some of the things that my kids have went through in their lives, I always tell teachers, trust me, you're compared to what they've dealt with, you're not having as bad a day as you think. And so I always tell educators like, being happy doesn't mean you have to show up every day with a smile on your face. I mean, being happy is showing up knowing that things aren't always going to go the way they shouldn't go, but how you approach that and your attitude approach that you can control all that, you know, and that's the thing I go in every day knowing that it's going to be different, you know, and not to say that I don't have a smile on my face. I do, but sometimes being happy is just going in and knowing that there's going to be challenges, but, overcoming those challenges is not only going to make you a better teacher, but it's going to make you a more humble human being. And trust me, if you're a more humble human being, you're going to be a fantastic teacher. So yeah, that's, that's just how I look at it. You know, is every day is different. It's not, you know, sometimes people are like, Oh, Lee, you're Nebraska teacher of the year. You must go in every day with a smile on your face. Nah, there's challenges, but again, that doesn't mean I'm not happy. You know what I mean? I mean, how many of us go into work every day and we're super happy? I mean, it's always understanding that it's going to be different, but I've learned that, you know, as much as I teach my kids, they teach me a lot about how I can be a better person. 
you know, because we all have bias. And sometimes I think one of the best pieces of advice that I can give is always apologize to your students when you're wrong, because it shows that you're a human being. And I do that a lot. Sometimes if I get, you know, you know, if something's going wrong and I'm in a cranky mood or something like that, I'll pull a kid aside and I'll say, you know, I'm so sorry. I just, it's just been one of those days, you know, technology's not working. I apologize. Kids really appreciate things like that. They really, really do. So you're giving out advice to the kids. Um, now to kind of flip it, what is a piece of advice that stuck with you that you think of frequently? And it could be from something you received from a colleague, a supervisor, or even a student. Yeah. Um, just never give up. I mean, I was an at-risk kid growing up. Uh, I barely graduated high school. Uh, I've been arrested for drunk driving. I've spent some time in jail for alcohol-related offenses. Uh, I've hit rock bottom. But, so just don't ever give up because even when I hit rock bottom, and trust me, when you know I was in jail for like two or three days, but I will say this, those two or three days there's only so much you can read. And when you hit rock bottom, you have a lot of time to think about everything. I mean, every choice you've ever made in your life. And even during all those times when people could have rode me off as a loser, which at the time I was truthfully in hindsight, 2020, I was totally a loser. I was on a very unproductive path. There was always amazing teachers there that just were there to give me the kind words that I needed to hear. And there's just never gave up on. And so that's what I would say is like, you know, I went from literally sitting in a jail cell to now I'm Nebraska teacher of the year. So just don't ever give up. And I always tell my kids this, embrace failure. And I know that sounds weird, but embrace it because the only way you're going to learn and succeed in life is if you fail, take risks, understand that change isn't always bad and understand that failure will lead to success. Because trust me, I have failed a lot in my life, but ultimately that is what led to my success. So that's the best piece of advice I would give is don't give up, it's okay to fail, and that will lead to, to success. So this leads into a great question. I can't wait to hear this answer. So you kind of alluded to this, and, and we talk about how the school year often goes in waves. And there's obviously, you know, tons of excitement at the beginning of the year around the holidays, but times can be stressful. You know, we're, we're nearing a time that's stressful. The end of a report card, parent-teacher conferences bring their stressors. What's something you feel like every teacher should think of or needs to hear to help power through that moment of struggle? That's a good question. Uh, just... From my advice is, I think a lot of times teachers, we feel like, you know, we have to do everything. We have to say yes to everything. And what I would say is learn how to professionally say no and don't feel bad about it. Because I think a lot of times to allude to your question, like we get stressed out about deadlines and lesson planning and curriculum guides and pacing guides and conferences. And then during the midst of all that, when people ask us to do things and new teachers are guilty of this because I, I was a new teacher and I literally said yes to everything and you get burnout that way. And it's like you have to find 
I don't know if you guys watch Cobra Kai. I love Cobra Kai on Netflix. Huge Karate Kid fan, but it's it, you got to find that balance. And one of the questions that's always asked me when I go speak is like, what piece of advice would you give to me going into my first three to five years? And that is learn how to say no. Like that email, it's not going anywhere. Check it in the morning. You know, set a timer. You know, when you're grading papers, stop. Those papers aren't going anywhere. And even like with me, yeah, I've done 37 speeches, but I've said no to a lot of things because at some point you have to understand that if you can't take care of yourself and you can't be in a good mental state, how are you supposed to be there for your students? And ever since I started profession, and not that I don't do a lot and I don't say, you know, I'm on a lot of committees. I'm on like 10 or 12 on the federal, state, and local levels, in addition to being teacher of the year and teaching full time. But I also balance my life too. I say no to a lot of things. And I think that sometimes as teachers, we feel like if we say no, we're letting down the school and our students and the community and the families. No, you're not. You're being a human being. And sometimes a human being needs to go home and get 10 hours of sleep. You know what I mean? So yeah, just learning how to professionally say no and self-care, especially with, with, you know, we're, we're luckily, you know, getting out of this pandemic, but I think it's more important now than ever to learn how to professionally set boundaries and differentiate between professional life and personal life. And I think a lot of times we get so entrenched in that professional life that we lose sight of family, friends, loved ones, you know, hobbies, interests, and things that we personally like to do because we're, we're too worried about other people. And I say, you know, one of the thing is I care for my ELLs. I will do anything for them, but I also know how to take care of myself too. And that's why I'm able to do everything I'm able to do. That's why I'm able to do this interview here is because I've said no to a, a few of these, you know, and the thing is, is like, I either say no or, you know, just try to find an alternate date. But it's one of those things where you have to professionally set boundaries for self-care. Absolutely. It's essential. Well, we sure are glad you said yes to us and yeah. you'll, be happy, you'll, you'll be happy to know that, that we have had a Karate Kid analogy in a very pre, a very uh, episode a long time ago. I forget what it was, but I know it was my analogy. So I'm right there with you. So last question, our exit ticket before Matt uh, makes a request. It is easy to fall into facilitating a repetitive classroom. What do you think separates teachers who are constantly seeking change, innovation, and incorporating new teaching strategies? You've got to learn. You've got to learn how to. Oh, how do I say this? Uh, you've got to learn just how to be open-minded, and you know, you've got to learn how to accept constructive criticism. And I, I get it. We're human beings. We don't like to be told we're wrong, or we don't like it when someone comes into our classroom and says, "You know, maybe you should do it this way." I mean, we're humans. We're wired like that. But the thing is, is if it's not working, then you should change it. So, like. So full full transparency, my first five years, I was not Nebraska Teacher of the Year. I wasn't teacher of anything, truthfully. My second year, I, I honestly thought of quitting the profession. I didn't think it was for me. But I remember a colleague of mine who was a very dear friend of mine. He asked me this question. He goes, Lee, when you leave your classroom, I want you to make an observation. He goes, are you more tired than your students? I said, yeah, I am. He goes, then you're doing something wrong. And I was like, oh. And he basically said, your st-, he goes, are you doing the majority of the work in your classroom? And I said, yes. 
then you're doing something wrong. And sometimes, sometimes as humans, we, we want people to tell us what we want to hear as opposed to what we need to hear. You know, we want to hear it, but it's not the right thing to hear. He, this individual told me what I needed to hear. And I'm glad he told me that because it made me look at my classroom differently. And one of the, some of the best teachers I've ever observed, because he gave me recommendations on who to do peer, you know, observations on, they were masterful and so craftful about how they ran their classroom. It's almost like the classroom could have ran itself because they were, he basically said, the best teachers are facilitators of the learning, which means your students should be working harder than you and not the other way around. And once I figured out how to do that, my classroom just runs like a well-oiled machine. Like I have a, a substitute teacher that comes in every time I have to be gone for Nebraska Teacher of the Year. And I remember one time she texted me and she goes, you know, your classroom could run itself. I go, I know, because I've set the systems in place as the facilitator. And my students know that they're going to be doing a majority of the work. I am just the facilitator that's facilitating the learning. And that was the best piece of advice I have ever gotten because that is kind of the uncomfortable truth I needed to hear. I didn't necessarily like hearing it. None of us do. But sometimes you need people to check you like that because it makes you better. Because if you're doing something wrong all the time and you're not seeing results, I would hope that somebody would come to me and say, you know, you need to fix this. You know what I mean? And I think we've all kind of had that moment where someone said something to us and we we're just like, wow. I needed that. So yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you may, may with that answer, extend this conversation, the three hours that Ken wants, you know, that <laughs> nails one of his principles. And I think all of us as educators, um, whether it's Danielson model, we all understand that that systematic approach, it goes along with the idea of I taught you how to navigate this. I, you know, I empowered you to have the ability to question it's you know putting the leverage in the kids hands and facilitating is the best way to kind of reference the idea of stepping away and and uh really putting putting the keys in the kids hands to to control their learning yes Ken, absolutely i won't even let you chime in because you're not going to stop but <laughs> Um, Lee, I, I will say on behalf of us, I also could would love to continue this conversation, but respectfully, I know your time more than anything is limited. You have many responsibilities. You have a big and uh, exciting year ahead. What is the best way that our audience can continue to follow along and interact? Yeah, so um, when I'm done, Ken, I'll text you my website. That's kind of, uh, I'm proud of this because I've never done a website. So this was like my creation over winter break when I was tired of watching Netflix and watching season three of Cobra Kai, like for the 40th time. So I was like, I better no. an old uh, teacher of the year here in Nebraska said, you know, put a website together. So the best way to get a hold of me through is my website on Twitter. Um, you can follow me at language Perez and yeah, um, just, it is going to be an exciting year. Uh, I have two speeches this week and, um, you know, I still have the entire summer uh, and um, just looking forward to just everything that goes along with it. We have 28 days of school left. 
it's going fast, but yeah, it's just, you know, I'm just trying to go out and educate people on how English as a second language works. And just kind of an interesting, kind of a heartwarming story is the last engagement I did, I was at uh, a local university here in Nebraska and I gave a speech and I can send you the speech. They actually recorded it too on YouTube. I'll text all this stuff to you and email all of it to you. Uh, this young lady came up to me and she was a refugee from Cuba. And she just basically said, you know, I really, really appreciated your presentation. I really, really appreciated all the, the factual things that you said about, you know, native language and how it's empowering to have kids speak their first language to help support their native language. And then she started getting very emotional and tearing up. And it was just kind of, so I leaned in and I gave her a hug. And she basically said, I just wish that more teachers understood that, you know, it's hard to learn a new language when you come from a different country as a refugee. And it's, and some of the, she basically said that some, I wish I would have had more teachers like you that would have tried to like understand that because I had teachers that, you know, told me, oh, you can't speak Spanish. You can only speak English. And it's just like, it just makes my advocacy more important because again, an ESL teacher in Nebraska has never won Nebraska teacher of the year. So no other teacher has ever presented workshops and keynote speeches and presentations on what I'm doing. And it just makes my work more important. So yeah, even though I'm tired, it's, it's like a good fatigue. I know that doesn't make sense, but I mean, it just, it, it's nice to know that I'm able to go out and I'm able to teach people the things they need to know to be successful with our English language learners, because I always tell everybody they are in our classrooms and they're here to stay. And that's a beautiful thing. And I think a lot of times we are, as humans, we are afraid of, of something that's different. And I always tell people, don't be afraid of that. Embrace it. You know what I mean? The best way to understand or to eliminate a label from a group of people is the universal language, which is food. Sit down with these groups of amazing people that come to our country and eat dinner with them. And I promise you, every stereotype, every negative thing you've ever heard, every label that you've seen, anything you've ever read on social media will be completely eliminated. Sit down and have food with people. And I promise you, you will leave there saying, wow, that was the most impactful professional development I've ever had. So thank you. I, I love that. And that's a, that's such a great way to, to, to wrap this up here. So Lee, this is, this has been fantastic. Uh, both selfishly for Matt and I, I know we both pulled away a lot of, you know, information, ideas, considerations for ourselves, but also for, for our listening and watching audience, they'll be able to, to do the same. And it's, it's definitely something that you should be very proud of. And your, your school is incredibly lucky to have you influencing and impacting that program. And now Nebraska as a, as a state overall learning about that, you know, I think you're, you're on such a, a fantastic platform with your motivation of, of why you pursued that and, and now making it to the national stage as well as, as all the teachers of the year start to, to come together and do those activities that uh, start to ramp up, but probably in the, in the summer or next fall, we actually, last week, we just had on the Arkansas 2022 teacher. Oh, year, Jessica? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jessica. She was, she was unbelievable. So this has been back to back, just like, she is, uh, of, she's, uh, a, 
He's a special ed teacher, yes, right? Yes. So it's oh, it's been two two back to back weeks of just incredible conversation around the really around the topic of how can we best serve all of our learners in a, in our communities. So so this is it, it kind of just it's funny how that worked out the the two weeks back to back. So it's really been great for for Matt and I and for for our audience overall. So. Um, everything that um, Lee shares and and um, and sends over as well as some of the the notes that I've taken as well will all be found on our website page at powereduup.com slash show69. So that'll be all there for you to check out and and use as resources. So Lee, thank you again. And Mr. Rogers, why don't you close up shop for us? All right. As we power down this episode, without doubt, Lee, you left us feeling powered up. Um the main thing, as Lee kind of echoed, is, you know, it is a gift to be a teacher. Um, and you can go into every day tired, but with a smile on your face and make a difference. So hopefully you do that tomorrow. And we look forward to talking to you next week. 